Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning. Uh, we, whether you know it or not and like it or not, we are family <laughs> because not only in God, which is true, but uh, I was leading a church called Rock Harbor for many years, helped plant that church and ended up becoming the lead pastor there. And the garden became the very first baby we officially had as a church eight or so years ago. And it was a, a faithful journey to watch a guy named Darren. Um, we actually, you guys have heard this story on a train in India. I don't know if you've heard that story, but we began talking about the possibility of something happening in Long Beach. Um, and Hay and his wife Alex and a, a team of young leaders that really had no idea what they were doing and still don't in many ways, um, saying, man, we want to be faithful to the doors God's opening. And Rock Harbor got to play a huge part in that. And you should know that now I think Rock Harbor has gone on to raise up and release leaders all over the world, but I think 10 or 12 different communities, it started here. And it's such a privilege to be with family. I'm going to assume this morning that it's safe to be family because we're just going to go totally off the script. Here's the script. This was a profound message I was bringing. I mean, it was life-changing, eloquent, yet funny. It had it all. And we're going to set this message down because last service, as in this service, John came up, he came up and messed it all up. He pastored the moment. And he tapped into a real moment that's happening not only here in this room or here in this community, but all over our nation, a moment of grieving and lament and disorientation. And honestly, I started spinning about halfway through that time of prayer because I just realized, oh, crud. I've got the wrong message. That's it's an okay message. It's not, not God's word for today. And I feel like I've stayed spinning the last couple hours because it tapped also into my disorientation. It's weird when you start talking about how messed up things are, you realize how messed up you are. Amen? And you realize it all fits somehow together under God, not outside of God, and certainly not outside of the church. And I could affirm the garden for many many things. I really could. I love this community. I actually have a chance to stalk you every week. You don't know that, most of you, but I work with this ministry called Alpha nationally. I'm on this lead team, and we're helping literally thousands of churches in our country do this Alpha course that the Garden now runs, and it's really not about a course. It's about a space that we believe the church needs for people that aren't church people to come in and ask questions. I grew up in the church. I never felt like I had that space to ask the questions, the big questions that were behind you know, all the right answers I carried. And to do that over a meal is awesome. And you know, Alpha is this ministry that exploded out of London about 25 years ago. 30 million people have been through this Alpha course. It's incredible what God's done. It's, it's God's size. But I love playing a part in that. But we actually office with the garden team here in Long Beach. It's your palatial garden office estates. You guys have some glorious offices down the street. And uh, we get to hang out and, and mix it up and share. What are those cool Nespresso, you know, uh, moments? But what we get to do is eavesdrop in on what God's doing on a weekly, daily basis to this community. And you, you should know how proud your staff and elders are of you of the ways that you continue to just step out into greater faith, 
greater um, discovery of the ways God's uniquely gifted each of you. But what I was going to say in all that is if I, if I would use one word to describe the garden, and I think this is a huge affirmation, it's real. You guys are real. And I say that because I've realized in leading church for decades and now having the chance to see hundreds and hundreds of churches, great churches around the country, there just feels like there's a greater and greater deficiency of real and a greater and greater need for real. My wife, Lisa, and I, Lisa's here with our kids this morning, and we've been praying about even starting a new community close to where we live in Costa Mesa. I've been helping a church through transition over the last year. It's been such a privilege to watch God take something that was pretty broken and begin to bring new life. But we've been dreaming about what, what would something new look like? I'm kind of a, a ground-level pioneer sort of guy, and I had a friend that's a church planner say, whatever it is, please, please make sure it's real. And I know those aren't just his thoughts or my great ideas. I just, even around the room, just see the nodding heads because we just know more than ever before we need more than pat answers, more than a cool bow to put on a service. And even last service, that's where as I came on stage, I'm like, man, God's doing something. And it's real. And I just, I want to go with it. And I, and I do feel like this is a day for us as a church family to join with thousands of churches across our country and just grieve. And be reoriented together in God and in the story we find ourselves in. I, uh, I have a friend that is an incredible woman of God. She's I would imagine been following Jesus 30, 40 years of her life, and she's an esteemed leader. She's brilliant, but she has been suffering through about eight years of just constant sickness. If it's not one thing, it's the next, and it's just really ravaged her body, and it's discouraged her heart. And I was with her the other day, and she was just telling me, honestly, she goes, man, I just feel like I'm so out of answers. I'm so out of hope. And she said, the only place I can really open my Bible anymore is the Psalms. She said, it's the only place that gives me life. And I just prayed for her that she would feel great permission to live there because that's a powerful place for God's people to live. And I can relate. I, we've had a couple years of huge change and disorientation and unexpected twists and turns. And the Psalms have almost had this gravitational pull <laughs> for me. When I open God's word, I just can't help but go there. And as we talk about disorientation, John mentioned this already. If you're looking for disorientation, articulated in a very honest and real way, you'll, you'll find it in the Psalms. About half the Psalms are what we call Psalms of Lament. In fact, there's a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who's done some great work on the Psalms. And he basically boils it down to three different buckets you can put Psalms in. There's Psalms of Orientation, and those are the Psalms that are saying, you know, God is great, and you know, let's sing for joy, and clap your hands, and it's all good kind of psalms. And there are many of those that are psalms of just agreeing to what we already know. But then about half of the psalms lead down these dark paths. And even between services, I was just skimming through my Bible and just struck if I can find some of them, I, I kind of threw highlights on them quickly, struck by how many psalms just are so honest. It says, 
course I can find none of them right now. Where are they? Where'd you go, Laments? Here we go. Oh, here we go. Psalm 86. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Psalm 88. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. I've never heard that one set to music and sung in church. Have you? And there's so many more. Psalm 70, hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly to help me. And as we read through the Psalms, what these Psalms of disorientation do is they give us great permission, needed permission, to be honest with God and ourselves. And again, church isn't a place known by many to be honest and real. I I have another friend, a friend that just went through a huge meltdown in in his marriage because of some very poor decisions he made. And he's a ministry leader. And so he was leading in a church and stepped away from that role and was really forced to deal with a lot of his brokenness and even the brokenness of his marriage. And he told me that in leaving the church that he was helping lead and in going to find a place where he could worship in the way that he needed to worship, he was shocked at how few places he felt were safe enough to bring his brokenness. And he just used the the idea, gosh, there are so many people trying to put a bow on the lives we live. And, And he said, gosh, we are no longer in a place where we can do that in any authentic way. And what's great is God has taken him in to disorientation and met with him powerfully in that place. And ultimately, what we see happen in the Psalms is God doesn't leave us there. There are Psalms of what Walter Brueggemann calls reorientation. Psalms where then there's this new epiphany, new discovery, new arriving into a place of it's not all fixed, but God is real and God is good. God is good. He's lifted me out of the pit. He's saved me from the depths. He's set me on a rock. He's brought me under his wing. He is my refuge. He is my hope. I've experienced this in new and fresh ways. So we see those psalms, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Psalms that say, first of all, God is good. And second of all, God is good? (laughs) How can that be? And I think this morning we tapped into that even in our prayers because some of you were just being honest, saying, Lord, how can this be good? And maybe if we dare to be this honest, God, how can you be good if this is happening? And then we trust there are times where that question mark is somehow replaced by an exclamation point saying, God is good. He is. And you need to know this morning that that's not new to this time. That is the repeated work of God in his people, generation after generation after generation, captured in the Psalms, but captured through history. And I was reading a Psalm the other day and I, I saw a phrase jump out at me that I'd never noticed before. This is a psalm of disorientation. It's Psalm 137. And it says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
And then here's the verse that stuck out to me, and it was verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And this is a song obviously written out of a time of exile for God's people. What that means is, you know, they were once this proud nation, and Jerusalem, or Zion, was the epicenter not only of the, the physical territory, but really the spiritual activity of God's people. And at the center of that, this great temple where sacrifice after sacrifice was brought, those were the times of orientation. And then, because of disobedience and brokenness in leaders and in the nation, God allows them to be taken captive by Babylon and, and they become slaves. And that becomes their primary identity. And this, this song is written out of a time saying, gosh, how can we as people living in the wrong place and living with not much of a horizon at all in view, how do we sing songs of the Lord? Maybe some of us are feeling that way right now. Just how do we do this Jesus life in this place we live? We look at the questions. We look at the political landscape. When we look at an economy, when we look at the violence and the hopelessness, how do we do this? And thankfully, there is a glimpse, I think, of a path to walk that I just wanted to walk you through this morning. And if you turn your Bibles to Psalm 5, this is what God put on my heart this morning. What's funny is I was here, I think, a year or so ago, having the opportunity to teach, and I think I landed in the same place. And so forgive me if it's redundant, but I'm reminded, too, that God's people have been asked to reclaim these words over and over and over again. These psalms are the worship set list of God's people, and there's something powerful about recalibrating to the same simple, profound truths. And Psalm 5 is a psalm of David. It's also a psalm of disorientation, a psalm of lament. It's a psalm where David is on the run. He's being pursued either by King Saul or King Absalom. Saul, uh, who was supposed to be sort of his mentor, became enraged when David became popular under God's favor, and David was really promised Saul's throne, and Saul goes on this murderous manhunt after David, but what's sad is decades later, his own son is now his pursuer. And so in two different seasons of life, David is on the run, he has enemies plotting against them, and, and Psalm 5 really paints a picture of that. It's, it's David saying, Lord, these people are bloodthirsty, they're, they're after me, they're plotting against me. What are you going to do about it? That's where it lands. But I want to talk about where it begins. The very first verses of Psalms 5 say this. This psalm of lament begins with, Listen to my words, Lord, consider my lament. There it is. Listen to my words, Lord, Lord, consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. And so you see David turning to God and what I, what I love first is he does turn in reverence. There is this acknowledgement that he's turning both to the king and more than the king, he's aiming higher than king to God himself. And that may seem obvious, but I think David's at a place where as a king, or as a, whether it's a future king or a seasoned king, he's realizing, man, I need a lot more than anything I can bring to the table at this point. <laughs> Remember, this is a psalm of lament, so he's going to God out of desperation, out of disorientation, saying, Lord, this is falling apart. I don't know where to bring it, but this is such a simple point. It's important. 
he chooses to bring it to God. And he chooses to say, you are king. First of all, your kingdom come. You are in authority. But also, you are God. And David lives in a time where literally there are you know, dozens, if not hundreds of idols representing different places to turn. And there's something powerful about David saying, I choose you. Not even as one God among many, is the one true God. I was sharing last service, I grew up singing a song out of Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? You guys remember that one? It's still good. Classic. But I grew up singing that song with a horrible theology because I, I used to always think, you know, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And I was thinking about lifting my eyes to the mountains to find God because that's almost like it's kind of on its way to heaven, right? I'm lifting my gaze. And as I get higher, I begin to see God more clearly. That's not at all what that psalm's talking about. The psalmist is saying, I'm first drawn to the mountains because there are many gods in caves in the mountains that people turn to. That's where the idols are stored, in the mountains. And this is a psalm of ascent. It's a psalm where God's people are on their way to Jerusalem because every year, three times a year, they'd come together for these massive festivals and God's people would sing on the way in ways that prepared them to be oriented once again, again more to God. And I love how they would let the preparation begin before they arrived. I think that'd be good for every church to do. So often we come into these seats, into a room that we're really not ready for. And we trust great worship leaders like Pete to wake us up spiritually. But what Israel was called to do is show up awake, show up ready through singing these songs on the way. And this is one of the songs that says, okay, I'm lifting my eyes to God and I'm looking higher than the mountains. I'm not looking at the mountains because that's where the little gods lived. And I, I, I have problems too big for little gods. I can't settle for anything else than the God. And that's what David is saying. So he comes reverently, but then also he comes honestly. We're going to see that later, but he just says, Lord, hear my cry. In the morning, you hear my voice. And there's a sense of being able to live in that tension of saying, Lord, I acknowledge your kingship. I'm desperate for your, your sovereign authority as, as the creator of earth, but also I've got to come as a man who has big questions I'm carrying. And I come as a man not putting a bow on anything, but just pretty much dumping it at your feet. And that's exactly what this verse describes. It says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. And the picture painted in the Hebrew is a sacrifice, a, an Old Testament animal sacrifice being offered. And so what David's suggesting is that he comes reverently, he comes honestly, but then sacrificially, he just brings his requests, his brokenness, his turmoil, his, his anger, his bitterness, because it's all there. If we keep reading the psalm, we see all of it's on display, all of it hanging out to dry. David is pissed. He really is. But he's starting by bringing it to God. And I love the, the message version of this. The message is this you know, parallel to the Bible um, written by Eugene Peterson, incredible Hebrew and a scholar. And he just paints these, these pictures that I think are so powerful. And in Psalm 5, if I get this right, it's 
I lay the broken pieces of my life before you and wait for fire to descend. In fact, it says, every day you'll see me at it again. I place the pieces of my life before you and wait for fire to descend. So David is painting this picture of starting the day as he wakes up to new questions, new turmoil, new anxiety. And that's how I'm waking up many days. I don't know about you. I'm almost afraid to turn on my phone and go to USA Today because it's going to be something else, right? And especially after the week we've had, but it's more than the week, it's the last month, it's the last years, this world feels like it's unraveling. And so every day, both externally and even more so within me, there's things I need to bring. But there's this picture of somehow that becomes worship, it becomes sacrifice. Not because there's pretty music behind it or a pretty bow on it, it's because when offered to God reverently and honestly, he says, I will receive that. That honest, raw worship as an act of trust in me because you're bringing it to me. And that's what David does. That's what David does. And guys, I think that's the kind of church that Long Beach needs, I think that's the kind of church America needs, that's the kind of church the world needs to see, is a church that was doing what we were just doing together. Standing together in the questions, not living indifferently or ignorantly of the questions, praying into them, but also not somehow just saying, okay, how can Pete get us kind of clapping loud enough and singing with big enough smiles that we can sort of worship our way out of this. Instead, God's saying, no, worship your way right into it, right through it. Because what I've experienced in my life is that those times of disorientation, and first of all, I'm so grateful that we don't stay there forever. And I'm old enough, and now I can look back and go, oh, wow, those times do have an end. And then there's other disorientation that comes. But I've seen enough of the reorientation of God that I know it's true, I know it's there. I know he's real, but man, there are times when I'm so in it and so in the valley of the shadows that I need to just remind myself, first of all, of what he's done before, but also remind myself that it's in those times that I've grown the most. And wouldn't you say that? It's in those times of questions, of wrestlings, of brokenness, of of confusion and disorientation and anger and bitterness, that God usually does his best work. But we play a part in that. And I think that's not just true for people. I think that's true for churches. I think it's true for nations. I spoke of London. You know, it's an incredible thing. This ministry was born out of a church in London that Darren and Alex are going to be at with us just in a few months church called Holy Trinity Brompton. It's just a church with really good, humble people following God. But what I'm amazed to see is how in the soil of post-Christian England, where the church literally was just hanging on by a thread, I mean, down for the count, that in the midst of what structurally seemed to be imploding in the church, something real has begun to emerge that can only be explained by God. And as, isn't that the kind of people in church we want to be a part of is the stuff that can only be explained by God. 
And England has been in, you know, decades of just post-Christian lament and disorientation. And in a weird way, that's where God is doing his best work. When people are not relying on systems or even leaders, human leaders, but they're saying it's going to take more. There must be more. That was one of the songs written out of that renewal. There must be more than this. And I feel like that's the place we're living in right now for our country, for the city, for our lives. Lord, there must be more. We can't fall back on the old shortcuts. It's, it's got to be you. And I just want to encourage you as garden people, as Jesus people, even as American people, God does his best work in brokenness. He does. If we're willing to offer our brokenness back to him, which is what we were doing earlier. We were offering the brokenness of our nation back to him. There's a incredible author, theologian named Oswald Chambers, and one of my favorite quotes is this. He says, complete weakness and dependence is always the occasion for the Spirit of God to manifest his power. Isn't that great? Complete weakness and dependence is always the occasion for the Spirit of God to manifest his power. And this morning, I just have a hunch that I'm in a room full of weak, independent people. And we have a culture that tells us to kind of like prop ourselves up, put on a happy face. I live in Orange County, man. Everything's happy and glossy over there, right? But beneath the surface, there is so much brokenness, so much bondage. I was laughing last service. We, we had a prayer gathering in this classroom next door. And I love, by the way, just the commitment of the garden to prayer. I love that even as a team is working hard to prepare this room, there's a team in another room really doing the important stuff. And that's giving the service over to God. But as we were praying, I, I was drawn to the wall, and there was a chart called a positive thinking chart. <laughs> and it's all these little kids, and this isn't a bad thing at all, all these little kids being trained to think really positively about themselves. I can do it. Be self-confident. I have enough in me. I'm like, oh, man, they're going to get creamed at some point. <laughs> they really are. We know that. And again, nothing wrong with positive thinking, but it's going to take more than that, isn't it? And that's what our society is conditioned to. And the, the, the sermon I was going to preach, the really brilliant one, did land in Philippians 2, which is this picture of Jesus, which was so, so countercultural, because it pictured a God who was willing to descend into the brokenness, to embrace brokenness, to become broken to the point of death. And this was written in a culture where anybody of power climbed the ladder and fought people off. Rulers like Alexander the Great, described as arrogant, bloodthirsty, completely in command. The world was his risk board, but he was known by his power. Augustus Caesar, we know that name from the Christmas story. He's He's the dude that finds out that there's a Messiah coming from the wise men and just tries to wipe out an entire generation to prevent anybody from taking his seat of power. And then even Nero, who was this emperor really living pretty much in the time that Philippians was written. And Nero, wow, he was messed up. His mom, first of all, was messed up. She was killing people to get him in the phone. Then he killed his mom to keep her from getting in the way. It's said that he set fire to Rome, which devastated the city in ways to prepare a way for a bigger estate for himself. And that was the model of power and authority. That was the road 
to fixing something was just put more in the hands of the strong. And we see those promises even in our world today. Many people declaring, I've got the answers because I'm strong, I'm rich, I'm powerful. And that is not the way of Jesus. It's just not the way of Jesus. Because Jesus' way was to say, no, I become less. I become broken. And then, reorientation, he is exalted. And if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for us. And so this morning is a morning where we just want to pray for each other now. You know, we had a chance to pray for our country, but I just know, if you're like me, and I, I am in this place, I'm someone where I'll always default to either trying to fix it or run from it. And the path of Psalm 5 says, no, stay in it, bring it to God, bring it honestly, bring it reverently. But in the end, bring it broken. Bring yourself broken before him. Every question, every wrestle, everything that's been done to you, everything you're doing to yourself. And receive the anchoring you need. And I'll just end by saying this. What what we don't need is, quite honestly, the right president, the right budget, the right job, the right car, the right grade point, the right wife, the right husband. Those aren't unimportant things. What we need is a God who is real, a God who ultimately is sovereign, a God who, is a, a God who redeems, and, and no, out of my experience, God can redeem anything. There's no point at which God can't say, I've got this, and I know where to take it. But a God who ultimately is most concerned with you, not for what you could do or haven't done, what, not for what you could earn or ever deserve, simply because he's a God of love. And John prayed something this morning that was powerful. He said, Lord, give us the courage to love in these times. And can I tell you, you can't give it unless you've received it. You can't. You can try. But if perfect love casts out fear with a nation that is paralyzed by fear and anxiety, we need to receive love in order to be love. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.